Hi guys, it's me again, Hannah, and I am back at it again with another episode. You may have seen me on quite a bit of episodes. I did a brief inquiry on, I believe, high school relationships, um, my Built Different podcast episode about my story as a student athlete, and also my talk on women in sports during International Women's Day. And, you know, through all these episodes, I've I've really relived aspects of my identity, especially, you know, the student athlete one and the woman in sports one. And today I, I, I want to sit down and I was actually requested to sit down and talk about another part of my identity, which is me being an Asian American. Um, if you are listening to this later in the future, when this is being recorded is a time where Unfortunately, the Asian American community has faced a lot of violence, a lot of hate, and I was asked to, you know, come on here and talk about some of my experiences and what we as a community can do to, you know, face this and what we can do to help support each other through all of this because we need to talk about Asian hate. Um, I ha- I feel like I have a reputation <laughs> on this podcast for doing quite serious topics and I hope you guys enjoy that because I think that we should normalize talking about these things um this is a safe space for everyone so after you finish listening to this I really want to hear your thoughts you know interact with the podcast and you know let me know what you guys are thinking and everything about these like you guys are listening are is really really what's driving all of us to record these and this has definitely been (laughs) a spot of catharsis for me because it lets me talk out a lot of what I'm thinking and you know I really I really appreciate this space you know it's a safe space for me to talk about whatever's going on in my head and you know hopefully you guys find some insight in that but enough with the banter um (laughs) I think it's time to really dive deep into what we are talking about today and it's it's an important topic uh i'm gonna go through you know some of my experiences from like from really subtle to pretty overt or pretty obvious in terms of microaggressions or xenophobic behavior i've seen um i want to really talk about some of the specific phenomenons behind that just so the audience is aware of all these terms, and especially when they, you know, talk about these things uh, with their parents or with their peers or in their classrooms or wherever, um, you know, they will have that arsenal of knowledge. And, you know, my goal here today is to, I guess, like be an educational source. I'll do my best for that, but also just to spread awareness about what's going on. Because I believe that the best way to really involve yourself and not just this activist movement but in any activist movement is to be informed and be you know be open to learn about all these different things but so that's just kind of like that portion of it and you know we'll, we'll we'll dive into it and let's go with it so um asian american what what is what is an asian american well it's you know, (laughs) if you break down the word, it's, you know, a person of Asian descent who was born in America 
Um, I do know some international students uh, do deem themselves as an Asian American because they came to America to, you know, to pursue a further education, whether it be high school or college. So this term of Asian American is is pretty widespread. It's just the idea of integrating the Asian culture with the American culture, which um, since I do a lot of research on this, has many differences, but also has many similarities. But it's it's these two aspects that makes the um, the culture of the Asian American so so interesting and rich. It's a you know it's a combination of two cultures that are from different ends of the world, and yet they kind of somehow blend together to form something beautiful. But in that process, though, some people, including me, uh, have some difficulty realizing this. So. Um, I'll talk about kind of some experiences with me, like struggling with my identity. Um, when I was in middle school, I didn't know the term Asian American existed. <laughs> I know this seems kind of weird because you'd be asking like Hannah, it's, you know, it should be pretty, you know, pretty, pretty known. Right. And yeah, of course, like now, um, a lot of people know what, uh, know that what Asian American, like that term is. But when I was in middle school, uh, I didn't necessarily have the resources to inform me about this. And it seems, you know, it seems so weird. It's like, you know, how can me, you know, an Asian person not know that something like this exists when it when it um, applies to me? And that's because, you know, I look back at my middle school education and I never remember learning anything and like any any history about you know asian uh, about asians whether it be you know um chinese culture japanese culture korean culture or indian culture or all of these I, or any of the historical events that occurred there I, I never learned that and also there weren't many i guess opportunities or clubs in middle school to really am, um amplify you know, the, di- the diversity aspect. There was no, like, Asian American club in middle school, and I think there should be. It shouldn't just be in high school. Um, you know, we should be starting this idea of, like, a diverse, or, like, a diverse curriculum as soon as, you know, not even just middle school, but, like, elementary school. But that that's, that's I'm kind of going off <laughs> on a tangent there. But, like I said, you know, I didn't necessarily have those resources, and, you know, I struggled with, uh, struggled with the idea that I couldn't be both Asian and American. I had to be either or. So me trying to fit into the American culture meant I, you know, I had to sacrifice. Since I'm Chinese, I had to sacrifice parts of my Chinese culture. But if I leaned too much into my Chinese culture, I was going to not be able to conform in the American culture. So that was a huge thing I had to deal with. Um, you know, kind of balancing between those two, not really knowing what you know, like, how to deal with that, and it wasn't until high school, like I mentioned, you know, with those clubs and everything that, uh, the diversity clubs, when, you know, high school clubs such as the American, uh, Asian American Association, or the International Asian, um, Asian Students Association, something like that, where I, it opened my eyes to this, you know, the, I, this term of the Asian American, I was like, whoa, this exists, so I didn't have to, you know, struggle between whether or not to be Asian or American, you know, like, I've had, People in, um, people in America tell me, oh, you're too Chinese to be America. Yet when I go home to China, um, I tell uh, people tell me, oh, you're too American to be Chinese. And now, and, you know, 
after hearing that that you know that stressed me out so much so to see these clubs in high school made me feel so welcomed and so relieved that I could be both and I could embrace both I don't have to reject one culture for the other I could you know I could embrace both and I love that now you know I hold I hold that part of me so dearly and because it's it's such a unique idea like one once again like i said you know it's two cultures from different ends of the world and yet when they come together and blend together create something amazing so but with that though you know i don't want middle school students elementary students go elementary school students going through what i had to go through i don't want them to go through the identity crisis that early you know <laughs> um there should be resources in these, um, you know, in the elementary and middle schools that promote a diverse curriculum. You know, it's it's really shocking to see how Western Westernized um, elementary and middle school um, educational curriculums are, and also high school curriculums. Some 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 areas, like I'm fortunate enough to go to a school where diversity is really exemplified, and we learn about different um, different viewpoints and different perspectives uh, on history, and but I wish that was I wish that was seen elsewhere and also in earlier educational programs, and you know hopefully in generations to come we can really you know we can really put that in and implement that and you know prevent you know younger kids like what like go through what I had to go through, um but that's in school and. As you know, I'm also not just a student. I'm a student athlete. <laughs> so I swim, if, if that hasn't been obvious in these past few episodes. Um, and swimming is a predominantly white sport. That didn't bother me at first. I, you know, I learned to swim in China, actually, you know. I learned all the four strokes, you know, butterfly backstroke, breaststroke freestyle, all in China. Um, and then when I came back after learning that, I joined the swim team um uh back home in america and you know everything was fine you know i just swam and i i got pretty good you know um and then you know you know i would get you know i would get medals and i would get on the podium and you know all that kind of fun stuff as a younger kid but it was that you know me getting on the podium is when i first realized how predominantly white the sport was because when i looked around on was standing on a podium I looked around I rarely saw people like me I really saw a face that looked like mine um and when you see that it it kind of scares you a bit um there's a not there's not a lot of uh, people of color in the sport of swimming I mean nowadays I I'm definitely seeing more people of color join the sport of swimming and I love that it's just like I remember regardless of like how many people are uh, p- people of color are joining the sport you know it's still predominantly white and it's and then after me realizing that on the podium it just kind of you know sat with me for a bit and then I started noticing it even more you know I you know when I was in uh, I was like on the blocks or like getting ready to swim and I look around I'm like there isn't many people that look like me or even in the warm-up pool or even you know on my club team and you know that when you I don't I don't want to say I felt lonely but I, I you know I mean I, well I did but it it didn't bother me and instead it actually inspired me you know when I first brought this up with a coach that I work with uh, ver, I work with very closely with 
um he, he he introduced me to the idea of being like a lone wolf at the top you know when you really are striving to be at the top of something you know you're gonna be alone at one point you're gonna be the lone wolf at the top but ultimately you know that you just got to work towards a goal like that's how I felt with me like sure you know I don't see many Asian faces around when I'm swimming but that doesn't mean you know that doesn't mean I have to fade away from the sport in fact like the fact that I was able to accomplish everything I've done and I'm a person of color as an as a you know as an Asian American it just you know, it tells me like like any anybody can do anything, even in a sport that is predominantly well. Like anybody can excel in anything if they really put their heart and their soul into it. So you know, rather than letting, you know, this loneliness feeling get to me, it instead inspired me. It inspired me to really go at it with the sport and hope that one day, you know, I can inspire more Asian American youth, um, in the future to join the sport of swimming because the sport of swimming is amazing i still that's why i still do it you know i I love the sport i love what it teaches you i just wish you know there was more people of color in it and that's one of the driving forces of why i swim you know i really want to inspire people in the future who look like me and you know i feel like sometimes people are a little bit you know discouraged to participate in certain sports because you don't see many people that look like them and I get that, and I, I want to break that stigma because, you know, it, it really got to me at one point, but if it wasn't for what my coach told me about the lone wolf analogy, I, I don't think I would, you know, have pushed through. So, but yeah, like, POC representation is is definitely needed in the sports swimming, and it has been coming up, you know, um, especially with, um, with, with, with the with um with swimmers like Simone Manuel being a, a representation for the black community within swimming that was amazing I remember watching that and telling myself I want to be like that for the Asian American youth in the future like that kind of feeling like I, I've seen this representation coming out and I love it I absolutely love it so but you know it, it's still something that kind of sits with you if you guys know what I'm talking about um but yeah like that's just kind of like what I've noticed in my school life and in my swim life. And, but overall though, you know, like in all areas of my life besides these, I've noticed, you know, uh, like I guess acts of discrimination, both that are super subtle and also super obvious. And that's what I kind of want to segue into, which I want to talk about the spectrum of oh my gosh this is gonna sound really weird but the spectrum of discrimination against asian americans starting from you know very subtle microaggressions to overt xenophobia and i just wanted to come out with some of my experiences and just give some examples so that you know when uh when you guys see these kinds of things you can call them out especially the subtle ones because i feel that the subtle ones you know they just kind of get brushed under the rug is that how you say it yeah i think that's what you say (laughs) um but yeah so one pretty subtle microaggression that kind of goes under our noses is the idea of false positive affirmations. I learned this about because when I talked on a panel regarding this, um, somebody um, gave me a really good you know word for it, which is this false positive affirmations to really describe it. And just to give an example, so it's when people say, oh, Asians are all good at math. 
um when i was younger i was taught to treat that as a compliment but nowadays when we're really looking at it it's really harmful despite it being quote-unquote positive that's why we call it false positive because it generalizes a group of you know a, a minority group to be good at one thing and it disregards you know their merit if they are good at that thing and if they aren't good at that thing um it makes them think like is there something wrong with me and that's how i definitely felt you know math is definitely not my best subject i mean i'm definitely gotten better at it but it isn't my best subject and when that was the case especially in middle school when you know i was kind of constantly hit hard with that um stereotype that all asians had to be good with math i felt so stressed out whenever i wasn't good at math so you know i would be like is there something wrong with me am i am i not asian you know like that didn't really help with my identity crisis at that time. And then when I started getting better at math, people would say, well, of course you're getting, you're, you're, you're good at math. It's because you're Asian. It really disregarded all the work and like all the work I've done to really improve in that subject because it actually attributes my success to my race. And that's really harmful of a false positive. You may seem like if you ever said that to a person, you may seem like you're complimenting them. But in fact, it's, you know, it's really reducing them to a very, you know, generalized description of of a race. And, you know, that, that's something I wanted to tell people because I don't think some people realize that, which is totally okay because it's really subtle. And even, you know, you know, even we as Asian Americans are taught to just turn the other cheek and just accept it as a compliment. Because, uh, I mean, personally, from what I learned um for specifically chinese culture we are we learn to you know really avoid confrontation just turn the other cheek and just you know go on with our day because we don't want to make anything you know unless like we don't want to make any unnecessary conflict but you know there does come a place in time where we do need to point those out because it can be really demeaning to a lot of asian american youth um and yeah like these microaggressions like let's say I mean, some of my friends, sometimes they joke around about, you know, like they make Asian jokes, like oh, something's like, oh, they have small eyes or oh, they eat this or that. And it seems really harmless at first until that rhetoric becomes common. And that's not good. Normalizing harmful and false positive, um, false positive microaggressions against Asian Americans does not help with our current situation. Because when these words become normalized it pe- and when people start pointing out like, oh, there's something wrong with it there arises the sentiment of, oh, well, you normalized it, so why is it bad? Like, did you see what I mean? Like, people begin to uh, begin to fail to understand how actually harmful that is because you are, how do I, how do I describe this? Let's say, let's take the negative stereotype, for example. If negative stereotypes against Asian Americans become normalized, we are basically pinning um, Asian, certain Asian cultures on that negative stereotype. So, for example, for Chinese culture, if we all just if we normalize a joke that all Chinese people eat dogs, you know that, and then that becomes normalized. People are gonna start attributing, I guess, like quote unquote dog eating with the Chinese culture, and that's terrible because that's re- disregarding all the other rich aspects that were have been developed for centuries within the Chinese culture. And this isn't isn't just for Chinese culture, it's for any culture what's like whatsoever. And so that's why normalizing the sentiment of using stereotypes as jokes can be super harmful because at one point it's gonna be the norm and that's not what we want. Even if we say, oh it's just a joke, it's still in our head. And it's, you know, we, we want to be mindful of our rhetoric. If we re- if our humor really goes as far as, you know, 
using these harmful stereotypes or putting someone down for the sake of humor, then that isn't humor. That's just, well, in my opinion, that's not humor because I feel like you can be funny in many other ways that doesn't demean other people. Um, now, moving up the spectrum a little bit, um, toward, well, moving to the other end of the spe- spectrum towards you know, overt xenophobia, I think that's unfortunately what we're seeing a lot of today. And it's interesting because I've seen some articles where saying like a lot of the violence is because some of this rhetoric, like I mentioned earlier, got normalized and people started to act upon it. And, you know, that's what, you know, we see a lot of headlines about today with all the hate crimes against the Asian community, you know, um, elderly, um, elderly members being shoved on the road or being attacked. And there's all these pictures all on social media about all this. And it's, it's terrible. Um, I mean, thank God for me, I haven't really faced anything like any violent attacks, but you know, hate crimes don't have to be like, you, you, you don't have, you can't, well, okay. How do I say hate crimes do are violent for sure, but they can also be just really harmful rhetoric directed at a person. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know if that's, I mean, the definition of you know what? I'm going to do this right now. On the, what is the definition of a hate crime? That's, you guys can hear my keyboard click. Okay, right here. Ready? A crime, typically one involving violence that is motivated by prejudice on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, or other grounds. So typically one involving violence. So we'll say that. So like hate crimes, in a sense, do involve violence. However, there are certain moments where, you know, harmful rhetoric can be directed towards people that can make them fearful of that. And potentially that could also be you know, borderline a hate crime. I mean, I don't know. That's just kind of what I'm thinking. And I'll, it'll make sense when I give you some more examples. Like, for example, my friend, this is near the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, she was out walking her dog and then a group of boys in the car roll up to her and, you know, they start making, you know, racial slurs at her and they're saying, go back to China, you brought the virus. And I'll see like all this harmful rhetoric and she became fearful that they were going to get out and attack her. So that's why I said like this harmful rhetoric can't, we are fearful that this harmful rhetoric could escalate into a hate crime into unfortunately what we see today. And, you know, it, it has been, it, it has been hard, you know, watching all this happen. And as you can see along the spectrum, something as so subtle can so slowly or rapidly escalate to something as big as overt xenophobia. Both spectrums of discrimination exist, are existing right now. And, you know, the best way to prevent these hate crimes is to really acknowledge, is to, well, one, acknowledge they exist. Um, I won't cite anything um, specific, but I, guess, I, I think some people may know what I'm talking about when I say acknowledge the hate crime. I'm looking at Atlanta, the police force, for saying that what happened in Atlanta was not a hate crime. It was instead the, um, you know, the assailant having, quote, a bad day, but that's just, you know, we'll just, you know, go off, I guess. Um, but first off, it's like, it's important to acknowledge that this is a hate crime because, because after that, we can help prevent it by saying like, we cannot encourage the rhetoric that leads up to this hate crime. So I don't know if that made sense. It's mostly just me rambling, but it's also just some of my thoughts on that. But I hope you guys can see the wide spectrum of discrimination and how something so subtle can become normalized and then escalate into something so huge. So 
And yeah, that's kind of that's kind of that part. Whew, sorry. I'm a little I'm I'm getting a little bit choked up talking about this, but I'm okay, no, because I feel that this is good to talk about. But I mean, going off of that, I have to be honest though. You know, scrolling through social media, you know, looking at everything going on, talking about it, talking about it is totally fine. Like I said earlier, this is like catharsis to me because there's so much on my mind um, thinking about all of this. But <laughs> it's been, I, I, I can't sugarcoat it, it's been hard. It's been really hard. Um, you know, scrolling through everything seeing everything happen and even though i cited many ways that we can do to help there is a certain helplessness to it when you watch members of your community um be subject to what's going on and not sure like you can't be there right there right right then and there to help them out and the most you can do is just be vocal about what you can say but it's just there's like a part of you inside that just wishes you could do something more. And that's definitely been bothering me. And for, you know, for weeks, I wasn't able to say anything about what's going on because I, I felt so helpless. I, of course, I'm going to acknowledge it and I'm going to talk about it. I mean, I talked on the panel. I'm talking right now. Uh, you know, I finally spoke up. On, I spoke up on social media, which actually the post I, I put up on social media, I was going to read at the end of this podcast. Um just to reiterate what I wrote, but, you know, I can do all this speaking out, but ultimately it's just going it, to, it's still sitting with me. I, I sit, I sit in my room sometimes and, you know, like, I, I just don't know what to do, you know, it, I, I feel outraged at what's going on right now, but, you know, you just feel a little bit helpless and at one point, this helplessness did almost really, you know, prevent me from doing anything. Because in my head, I thought, well, is my, like, am I able to do anything? You know, are my words, are my actions even worth anything in this case? And obviously now I know that they are. And that awareness, like I said earlier, like I preach awareness and speaking out is so critical but when you see so much just going on overwhelming stimuli you just feel overwhelmed you kind of shut down a bit like I remember one time when I you know after Atlanta happened I was driving home and I was talking to some of my friends and I was talking about it you know me talking about I'm always doing research on this I have two school projects that are centered on this so having that and then hearing all over the news and going on social media and not being able to scroll down three pictures and seeing it I, I just burst into tears because there was so much going on and I felt that no matter what I did it was hopeless and, you know, at one point, I couldn't focus on my schoolwork. I couldn't focus on anything because I was just so absorbed by it. And that's not me saying, like, you shouldn't be speaking out or anything. That's just like, no, no, no. I, I, it's just my, those are my personal reactions to it. And I feel comfortable sharing it on this podcast because I, this is a safe space and all that. Um, but, you know, the, the bottom line, though, is like, the, one of the reasons why I was able to really get out of that rut was because, you know, friends and family 
uh, well, friends and family showed their support. You know, my family's always there for me. You know, they understand what was going on and everything. My friends reaching out to me being like, hey, Hannah, I hope you're doing okay. You know, we're thinking about you. That really helped me get out of it. Because when you when you feel alone in this case, when you feel helpless in this case, sometimes just like a helping hand is what you need. And, you know, that comes to my point, which is another way that a lot of us can help, you know, is reach out to your Asian American friends. Check in on them. See how they're doing, you know we we kind of stomach a lot of this or we swallow it down because once again like i said and personally in chinese culture we just kind of turn the other cheek and we we don't we, we avoid confrontation or we avoid you know doing these I, I mean like i guess making a fuss out of it because you know we just want to move on but in that ca- in, in that case though it, it, may, it creates a unhealthy pattern where we stomach it all down and it might burst out out of nowhere so really though like check in on your asian american friends they really you know they may seem like they're okay but just a nice little note will will go a long way you know just checking on them they'll really appreciate it i know i will appreciate it um and you know, to all the asian americans out there i just want to know i, I just want to let you guys know you know that I am here for you, you know, we all stand together in this, we are stronger together, and if you need anything, feel free to contact me, we will talk about this, we will, you know, we can talk about it together, we can cry together, laugh together, you know, really engage in this act of catharsis that I think we all truly need. <sighs> Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> um, there's another thing, though, before I reach the end of this podcast that I want to talk about, which is, I guess, the historical aspect. Maybe I should have talked about this earlier, but uh, it's just coming to mind right now. Through talking about all of this, it some people I've talked to, not everybody, but some people I've talked to, it shocked me that these people don't know that you know xenophobic behavior has been uh, um has been around before the covid-19 era i think with covid-19 obviously the xenophobic behavior towards asian americans has intensified but xenophobia did not start um in during the covid-19 era it's been around since america's roots you know since what they, since their establishments you know with the with um with the all the immigration acts that prevented asian immigrants from moving in all the um all the complaints and the blaming of chinese immigrants for societal ills or for taking their jobs that's just what i know from my personal lessons or the chinese exclusion act obviously many other asian cultures have faced discrimination another one that comes up to mind is the japanese internment camps all of these is is the is the root of xenophobia and this was way before COVID nineteen occurred and I want to make this clear because this is another way we can really look at this is understanding that you know that the the system that we live in unfortunately promotes this behavior because of what it was built on if we can all come together and understand this and we as a as gener as a generation can come together and help improve these systems we can make this world a better place you know this isn't just about the asian american causes about every other cause out there this you know we can't start there is no prize in oppression it's time for all of us to come together and band together and really you know focus on what is what are the systems 
in place in America that are promoting this and how can we fix it? You know, we are the generation that will be able to make a change in this case. And if we recognize that xenophobia did not just start during COVID-19, but it started way beyond since like, you know, the industrial revolution, all that such, we can really make a change here. And I want to make that clear here. If there's one thing, if you've kind of been dazing out in this podcast and if there's one thing I want you to just remember, it's remember this. We need to all come together. Yeah, we need to all come together to to really help improve the systems that have put certain minority groups at the bottom has been oppressing them because we cannot reach we cannot reach any sort of progress until all of us are on equal footing i hope that made sense but that's just kind of like my big call to action that i've been really encouraging people because you know i think that would be the ultimate step forward towards fixing well, fixing or just mitigating the issue we have um, at hand. Because, you know, at the end of the day, though, I just want to make it clear, you know, when, when all this passes, we can't forget about these moments. Like, I feel that sometimes on social media when we all promote this and we all, like, talk about this, it goes on for about maybe, like, a month or so and then it fades away. We cannot, you know, we cannot be silent about this issue. We ha- we can't just stop. We can't just put it on put on your Instagram about something and then just let it be. No, we have to keep fighting. There is no room for performative activism here. If we really want to make a change, we need to be consistent with our activism. And I understand, you know, being burned out by activists. That was me, you know, me feeling helpless about whether my words, whether my actions, whether, you know, my posting, my all those kind of things was doing anything or my donations or things like that, whether it was doing anything. And I felt burnt out by that. But if we, you know, take it easy, but we also keep consistency, uh, keep it consistent, we can really make a change here. If like one thing my mom told me that really helped me get out of this rut of you know feeling helpless in the situation was she told me well if everybody because when i told her i said you know i don't think you know um you know i don't think my words are useful i don't know what my words will have like what impact they will have and actually when i was about to when i was debating whether or not i wanted to post my big thing on social media about my story and my thoughts about the situation going on i go up to my mom like mom i don't think my story is worth anything. I don't know if it will have any impact on people. And then she turns to me, she goes, well, Hannah, if everybody thought that their story was was had no meaning whatsoever, do you think we would have a movement like this today? And that blew me out of the water because that made me sit back and think if everybody thought that their stories weren't going to do anything, we wouldn't have a movement like today. We wouldn't have movements in general. The reason why move, the activist movements have been able to occur is because everybody comes up and they rise up and they say something regardless of if they think it's trivial or not. And I want that to encourage to all the Asian Americans out there. If you're hesitant about speaking out about your stories, I, I encourage you to really speak out. And if you think that your words aren't going to be worth anything, trust me. They are worth they, they are worth everything and, and even beyond that. We need your voice right now. No voice should be oppressed right now. All voices should be coming up and be heard and be loud and clear for this cause. And, you know, after I realized that, it, it changed a lot. You know, I was able to speak out in my school dialogue i was able to post my thing on social media i'm able to come here today even though middle of it middle of it i i kind of you know got choked up a bit 
uh, I'm able to come on to here and talk about this for already 35 minutes. And I hope it, I hope what I'm talking about made sense, by the way. And once again, if you guys have any questions about it, feel free to let me know. You know, I, I, I'm always happy to talk about these things. And there's so many things I didn't even touch upon yet. Um, I mean, if you guys want more information, um, wait, I hope, <laughs> I hope Lily doesn't mind me plugging my Instagram in a podcast episode, but if you ever want more information, I have a link in my Instagram bio, which is hannah.mlu, so H-A-N-N-A-H dot M-L-I-U. If you go to that, there is a link in my bio to a bunch of resources that me and my friends on the panel that I was on compiled together, and if you ever want to learn more about, you know, the history of Asian American oppression or the certain phenomenon that surrounded. Like, I didn't even talk about so many things. I didn't even talk about the model minority myth. I didn't talk about the lunchbox, um, like the lunchbox experience, things like that. If you ever want to learn more about these things, um, you feel free to go to th- that link and just, you know, really immerse yourself into it or just go on Google and just see what you can find. I really encourage people to do that. Just take some time out of their day and just really inform themselves on that. But yeah, I, Lily, I hope you don't mind me plugging that, but uh, that's just another way for resources. But um, before I end this podcast, I do just want to read off my social media posts. Uh, funny enough, though, I actually formatted this podcast, like unconsciously formatted it after like how I wrote it. So you might hear some parallels here and there um, through it. And, but that's how I end this podcast um, with. So... <clears throat> if you don't mind me, the <laughs> my story, my thoughts, written by me, Hannah Lou. <clears throat> my struggles with my identity stemmed from a lack of resources, which prevented me from learning that the term Asian American existed. For years, I struggled with the notion that I couldn't be both Asian and American. It wasn't until high school when clubs such as the Asian American Association helped solidify that part of me. In my sport, I rarely saw people who looked like me. Whether it was on the podium, on the blocks, or in the warm-up pool, I find myself feeling alone at times. Rather than let this feeling get to me, it inspired me to keep pushing towards my goals, hoping to inspire more Asian American youth to join the sport of swimming in the future. Over the years, I've observed subtle microaggressions to model minority myth and overt xenophobia towards the Asian American community in various areas of my life. The arrival of COVID-19 in America only worsened this sort of sentiment. It's been hard scrolling through Instagram these past days. What pains me more is that time and time again, the perpetrators of these incidents are being let off the hook easily despite them violently attacking members of the Asian American community while using harmful rhetoric such as Kung Flu or Go Back to China. For years, xenophobic sentiment against the Asian American community has never been talked about in the news. I'm glad that we as a society are beginning to bring these incidents to light, but xenophobia did not start during the COVID-19 era. It's been around since America's roots when Asian immigrants faced racism and intolerance at the local and governmental level. I shouldn't be scared whenever I leave the house. I shouldn't be scared to go to practice or school because I fear that something might happen. 
I shouldn't be scared of what might happen to my family or my Asian American friends. It's time to stand up. It's time to speak up. It's time to keep our peers and political officials accountable. Enough is enough. So that's what I posted on there. Um, you know, that was just a little bit what I was thinking. And obviously this podcast elaborated, elaborated a lot on that. But I really just wanted to end this episode with that, just really summarizing everything I've talked about. And if you are listening to this right now, I really appreciate you, you know, sitting down and taking the time to listen to what I have to say. Um, By you listening to this, it's, you know, you're already helping, you know, the Asian American community. Um, You're not only helping me (laughs) aid in my catharsis, um, and I hope my catharsis had some meaning to it or has some insight to it. Um, But once again, I mean, I plug my Instagram in there. So if you ever want to talk to me about anything, feel free to. Um, Actually, I would love it. You know, I'll be totally fine with that. I love talking to people about this kind of things. But really, you know, uh, I just want to encourage everyone to, you know, spread awareness, continue to spread awareness, um, really speak out about these issues when you are on social media or when when no one's watching and some and like and you see somebody, you know, say a microaggression or do something harmful towards an Asian American or just towards anybody. Um, I encourage people, you know, to have the courage to call them out because like I said earlier about like the spectrum of discrimination, you know, these subtle microaggressions can evolve rapidly into, you know, what we see today as like, you know, the hate crimes or even, you know, certain situations that even threaten to be hate crimes, you know, when harmful rhetoric almost seems, seems to threaten to lead into more violence, like I described earlier. Um, you know, that's another area, but also, you know, just being there for each other, reaching out to your Asian American friends, you know, learning about what's going on right now. That's really what I want to encourage. So, but yeah, I got into some hefty topics today, but I promise I will be back to my somewhat lighthearted self in episodes to come unless I'm requested to talk about more hefty topics which is totally fine once again as i said we shouldn't be normalizing this you know we should really be talking about these kind of things but um you know i hope you guys enjoyed this episode once again please let me know if you have any questions stay safe stay hydrated um go check on your friends go check on your family um wear a mask (laughs) and you know just have a great rest of your day or night or whenever you're listening to this i am sending you all good vibes, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye!